0: Tune in as we continue to update our podcast with informative talks and articles for Masons worldwide and those who would like to inquire within. Greetings and salutations after a couple week break of me traveling for business and the Grand Lodge Annual Communication in California. We are back with chapter 37 of Mackey's Revised History of Freemasonry. 37 is the Pythagoreans and Freemasonry. There is a popular theory crediting, if not the actual origin of Freemasonry to Pythagoras, at least its introduction into Europe by him, through a school which he started at Crotona in Italy. This theory was a favorite one among our early writers, but it may very properly be placed among the legends of the order, since it lacks all the requisites of historical authority for support. The notion was most probably taken from what has been called the Leland manuscript, because it is said to have been found at the Bodleian Library in the handwriting of that celebrated student. The author, Hearn, of The Life of John Leland, gives this account of the manuscript. The original is said to be the handwriting of King Henry VI, and copied by Leland by order of His Highness King Henry Eighth. If the authenticity of this ancient monument of literature remains unquestioned, it demands particular notice in the present publication, on account of the singularity of the subject, and no less from a due regard to the royal writer and our author, his transcriber, indefatigable in every part of literature. It will also be admitted acknowledgment is due to the learned Mr. Locke, who, amidst the closest studies and the most strict attention to human understanding, could unbend his mind in search of this ancient treatise which he first brought from obscurity in the year 1796. This work was first brought to public notice by appearing in the Gentleman's Magazine for September 1753, where it is said to have been previously printed at Frankfurt in Germany in 1748, from a copy found in the writing desk of a deceased brother. The title of it, as given in the magazine, is in the following words. Now, this is in Old English, but I'm going to try to translate it as best as I can. Certain questions with answers to the same, concerning the mystery of masonry, written by the hand of King Henry VI of the name, and faithfully copied by me, John Leyland, antiquarius by the command of His Highness. Masonic critics today believe that the document is a forgery. Brother Mackey thought it was most probably written about the time and in the spirit in which Chatterton composed his imitations of the monk Rowley and of Ireland with his impositions of Shakespeare, and was prepared as an attempt to imitate the language of the 15th century, and as a pious fraud planned to elevate the Masonic fraternity by furnishing the evidence of its very ancient origin. Such were not, however, the views of the Masonic writers late in the 18th and early in the 19th centuries. They accepted the printed copy, for the original manuscript was never seen, with firm faith as an authentic document. Hutchinson gave it in his spirit of masonry, Preston put it in the second and enlarged edition of his illustrations, Calcott in his candid disquisition, Dermot in his Ahiman raison, and Krauss in his Drei Altesten Konstrukunden. In none of these is there the faintest hint of uncertainty. Oliver said, I entertain no doubt of the genuineness and authenticity of this valuable manuscript. The same view was held by Rigolini among the French and by Krauss, Fessler, and Lenning among the, among the Germans. Halliwell was perhaps the first of English students to doubt its genuineness. After a long and unsuccessful search in the Bodleian library for the original, he came very naturally to the conclusion that it is a forgery. Huguen and Woodford arrived at the same conclusion, and it is generally agreed that the Leland or Locke manuscript, for it is known by both titles, is a document of uncertain historic character. But we must not overlook what has been said to the contrary. As to Henry VI, we read that in 1442 he was initiated into masonry, and from that time spared no pains to obtain a complete knowledge of the art, and honored them with his sanction. And again... The attempt has often been made to prove that Henry VI was a zealous patron of the Freemasons. A curious manuscript, purporting to have been drawn up in the king's own handwriting, is frequently cited to attest his affection for the craft. The weakness of Henry VI's intellect is well known, and also his disposition to pry into the mysteries of that strange science of alchemy it is possible that his attention may have been directed to the mystic rites which were practiced in the initiation into the secrets of masonry, as furnishing him a probable solution of the problem involved in the pursuit of the Philosopher's Stone. However, the original manuscript, of which a copy is said to have been found in the year 1748 in Germany, has never been produced. A careful examination of the pamphlet, republished by Krauss, convinces me that it is genuine and entitled to full credence. Who the author was is uncertain, but it presents all the appearance, from the phraseology and antique orthography at least, of having been written as early as the middle of the 15th century. The traditions of the fraternity are also as accurately transmitted by this manuscript as by those which Masonic historians have accepted to be genuine. Among other legends which it contains is one that Venetians brought Freemasonry from the East. How closely this corresponds with the actual transmission of architectural art to the West readily appears. Whoever wrote the document in question was profoundly versed in the secrets possessed by the craft. Gould, in his concise history, says the manuscript mentioned above was at one time generally accepted as an authentic document of the craft. But the view is not shared by modern writers, who regard it as a palpable fraud and wholly unworthy of the critical acumen which has been lavished on its contents. We are not in possession of any new facts which would justify a reversal of this judgment, but the data on which the original sentence of condemnation was based seems wholly inadequate. Many of the arguments are trivial and puerile in the extreme, and some of them result of prejudice against the high degrees. This is the day when even our sacred books are made the target of destructive criticisms. It is a fad, and while we cannot say the Leland manuscript is genuine, we do say that most arguments against it are puerile, trivial, merely negative, and perhaps a result of prejudice. The editor of The New Age has, in my opinion, presented some very cogent reasons for a rehearing of the case. The Leland manuscript claims to be answers by some Freemasons to questions proposed by King Henry VI, who it would seem must have taken some interest in the mystery of Masonry, and had sought to obtain a knowledge of its true character. The following are among the questions and answers. Where did it Freemasonry begin? It did begin with the first men in the East, which were before the first men of the West, And coming westly, it hath brought herewith all comforts to the wild and comfortless. Who did bring it westly? The Venetians, or Phoenicians, who, being great merchants, come first from the east in Venetia, or Phoenicia, for the commodity of merchandising both east and west by the Red and Mediterranean Seas. How come it in England? Peter Gower, or Pythagoras, a Grecian, journeyed for cunning in Egypt and in Syria and in every lund whereat the Venetians or Phoenicians had planted masonry and winning entrance in all lodges of masons, he learned much and returned and dealt in Greek magna, growing and becoming a mighty philosopher and greatly renowned, and here he framed a great lodge at Crotona, and maked many masons, some whereof did journey in France, and maked many masons wherefrom, in process of time, the art passed in England. Brother Mackie was convinced that there was a French original of this essay, from which language the translator put it into Old English. The inner proofs of this are to be found in the main, many peculiarly French turns and twists in the words and phrases. Thus we meet with Peter Gower, evidently derived from Pythagore, pronounced Petagor, the French for Pythagoras. Maconry and Macones, for Masonry and Masons, the French C in the word being used instead of the English S. The phrase winning the faculty of abrac," which is a pure Gaelic idiom instead of acquiring the faculty the word Gagner being indifferently used in French as signifying to win or to acquire, the word Frere for brethren, and the statement in the spirit of French nationality that Freemasonry was brought into England out of France. He held that none of these idiomatic phrases or national peculiarities would have been likely to occur if the manuscript had been originally written by an Englishman and in the English language. Be this as it may, the document had no sooner appeared than it had inspired Masonic writers with the idea that Freemasonry and the School of Pythagoras, which he established at Cretona in Italy, about five centuries before Christ, were closely connected. This idea was very generally adopted by their successors, so that it came at last to be a point of the Orthodox Masonic Creed. Preston in his illustrations on Masonry Commenting on the dialogue in this document says that the records of the fraternity inform us that Pythagoras was regularly initiated into masonry, and being properly instructed in the mysteries of the art, he was much improved, and propagated the principles of the order in other countries into which he afterwards traveled. Calcott, in his candid disquisition, speaks of the Leland manuscript as an antique relation from whence may be gathered many of the original principles of the ancient society, of which the institution of Freemasonry was engrafted, by the ancient society, meaning the school of Pythagoras. Hutchinson, in his Spirit of Masonry, quotes this ancient Masonic record, as he calls it, and says that it brings us positive evidence of the Pythagorean doctrine and Basilidian principles making the foundation of our religious and moral duties. Two lectures in his work discuss the doctrines of Pythagoras in connection with the Masonic system. This theory of the Pythagorean origin of Freemasonry does not owe its existence to the writers of the middle of the 18th century. It was advanced by Dr. James Anderson soon after the revival in 1717. In the first edition of the Constitutions, 1723, he refers to Pythagoras as having borrowed great knowledge from the Chaldean Magi and the Babylonian Jews. Martin Clare, in his Defense of Masonry, 1730, says... I am fully convinced that Freemasonry is very nearly allied to the old Pythagorean discipline from whence I am persuaded it may in some circumstances very justly claim a descent. The old manuscript constitutions containing the legend of the Guild or the legend of the Craft, with a single exception, have no reference to Pythagoras. That exception is to be found in the Cook manuscript where the legendist, after telling the story of the two pillars inscribed with all the sciences and erected by Jabal before the flood, adds in lines 318-326 to this statement. And after this flood, many years, as the chronic telleth these, it were found, and as the Polychronicon saith, that a great clerk that called Putargus, or Pythagoras, found that one and Hermes the philosopher found that the other, and they taught forth the science that they found therein e-written. Although the Cook manuscript is among the earliest of the old records, the later manuscript constitutions left out this allusion to Pythagoras. This was because the writer of the Cook manuscript, being in possession of the Polychronicon, of the monk Ranulf Higdon, an edition of which he had been printed during his time by William Caxton, he liberally borrowed from that historical work and used parts of it in his legend. The story of the finding of a pillar by Pythagoras is one of those cases. The writer says he owes the statement to Higdon's Polychronicon, but it formed no part of the legend of the craft, and therefore no notice is taken of it in the manuscript copies where Pythagoras is not even mentioned. Evidently. In the 14th and following centuries, to the beginning of the 18th, the theory of the Pythagorean origin of Freemasonry, or of the connection of the Grecian philosopher with it, was not admitted by the craft as part of the traditional history of the fraternity. There is no safer rule than that of the old schoolmen, which teaches us that we must reason alike concerning that which does not appear and that which does not exist. De non apparentibus et de non existibus, Adum est ratio. The old craftsmen who shaped the legend were workmen and not scholars. They said nothing about Pythagoras because they knew nothing about him. About the beginning of the 18th century, a change took place, not only in the Masonic institution, but also in all the men who were producing the alteration, or we might more properly call it the revolution. During the 17th and perhaps the 16th century, many persons were admitted into the lodges of operative Freemasons who were not professional builders, but the Society had a purely speculative form in 1717. The revival in that year, by the election of Anthony Sayer, Gentleman, as Grand Master, Jacob Lamball, a carpenter, and Joseph Elliot, a captain, as Grand Wardens, proves that the control of the Society was leaving the hands of the operative Freemasons. Among those engaged in the reconstruction of the institution were James Anderson and Theophilus de Anderson was a Master of Arts, and afterward a Doctor of Divinity, the Minister of a Scottish Presbyterian Church in London, and an author. De was a Doctor of Laws, a Fellow of the Royal Society, and a teacher of experimental philosophy having no little reputation. Both of these men, as scholars, knew the system of Pythagoras. They were not unwilling to take advantage of his method of teaching and to use some of his symbols in the order they were renovating. Jamblichus, the biographer of Pythagoras, tells us that while the latter sage was on his travels, he was initiated into all mysteries of Byblos and Tyre and those which were practiced in many parts of Syria. As these mysteries were originally received by the Phoenicians from Egypt, he went there, where he remained twenty-two years, occupying himself in the study of geometry, astronomy, and all the initiations of the gods, until he was carried a captive into Babylon by the soldiers of Cambys. There he freely associated with the Magi and their religion and their studies, and having obtained a thorough knowledge of music, the science of numbers, and other arts, he finally returned to Greece. The school of philosophy which Pythagoras afterwards established at Crotona, Italy, differed from those of all the other philosophers of Greece in the strict initiation to which his disciples were subjected, in the degrees of probation into which they were divided, and in the method which he adopted of veiling his instructions under symbolic forms. In his various travels he had received mystical notions from the Egyptians and the Chaldeans, and had borrowed some of their modes of initiation into religious mysteries which he used to teach his own principles. Grote, in his History of Greece, has very justly said that Pythagoras represents in part the scientific tendencies of his age, in part also the spirit of mysticism and of special fraternities for religious and ascetic observance which became diffused throughout Greece in the sixth century before the Christian era. Of the philosophy of Pythagoras and of his method of instruction, which certainly bore a very close resemblance to that adopted by the founders of the speculative system, Such trained scholars as Anderson and de Sagalier certainly were not ignorant. If among those engaged with them in the construction of this improved school of speculative Freemasonry, there were any whose limited ability would not enable them to consult the Greek biographies of Pythagoras, by Jamblichus, and by Porphyry, they had at hand an English translation of M. Dossier's Life of the Philosopher, containing also a thorough explanation of his symbols together with a translation of the Commentaries of Hyrodes on Golden Verses of Pythagoras, all in one volume and published in London, 1707, by the noted bookseller Jacob Tonson. There was abundant material and ready opportunity to know the philosophy of Pythagoras, his method of initiation, and his system of symbols. It is not, therefore, surprising that these revivalists should have delighted, as Clare has done in his defensive masonry, to compare the two schools of the Pythagoreans and the Freemasons, that they should have dwelt on their great similarity, and in the development of their speculative system should have adopted many symbols from the former which do not appear to have been known to or used by the old operative Freemasons from whom they succeeded. Among the first Pythagorean symbols adopted by the speculative Freemasons was the symbolism of the science of numbers. This appears in the earliest rituals. Of this, Dr. Oliver has justly said, in his Pythagorean Triangle, that the Pythagoreans had so high an opinion of it that they considered it to be the origin of all things and thought a knowledge of it to be equivalent to a knowledge of God. This symbolism of numbers, used in speculative Freemasonry at a very early period, has been enlarged in revisions of the lectures until it is one of the most important and curious parts of the system of Freemasonry. But we have no evidence that the same system of numerical symbolism, having the Pythagorean and modern Masonic explanation, prevailed among the craft before the beginning of the 18th century. It was the work of the revivalist, who as scholars familiar with the mystical philosophy of Pythagoras, deemed it wise to introduce it into the equally mystical philosophy of speculative Freemasonry. The traveling Freemasons, builders, or operative Freemasons of the Middle Ages, who preceded the speculative Freemasons of the 18th century, did not, so far as we can learn, practice directly the symbolism of Pythagoras. Their symbols, such as the Vesica Pisces, the cross, the rose, or certain mathematical figures, were derived either from the legends of the church or from the principles of geometry applied to the art of building. These skillful architects, who in the Dark Ages, when few men could read or write, erected edifices surpassing the works of ancient Greece or Rome, and which are the admiration of modern builders, were were wonderful in their peculiar ability, but they borrowed nothing from Pythagoras, unless we include that theorem in geometry that is rightly or wrongly credited to him." Between the period of the revival and the adoption of the Prestonian system in 1772, the lectures of Freemasonry underwent at least seven revisions. Usually said to be at the hands of such scholars as Dr. de Ségalier, Martin Clare, a president of the Royal Society, Thomas Dunkerley, a man of considerable literary attainments, and others of like character. During this period, there was a gradual addition of Pythagorean symbols. Among these, the one most noted is the 47th proposition of Euclid, said to have been discovered by Pythagoras, and thus the introducer of it into the Masonic system. In his explanation of the symbol, claims the sage to have been an ancient brother. For some time after the revival, the symbols of Pythagoras growing into gradual use among the craft were referred to simply as an evidence of the great similarity which existed between the two systems. This theory, so far as it concerns modern speculative Freemasonry, may be accepted. The most liberal belief on this subject was that the two systems were nearly allied, but, except in the modified statement of Clare, already quoted from his defense of Masonry, there was no claim in the years immediately succeeding the revival that the one was of direct descent from the other. None of the speeches, lectures, or essays of the early part of the eighteenth century, which have been preserved, refer to this as an official theory of the craft. Drake, in his speech before the Grand Lodge of York, delivered in 1726, does indeed speak of Pythagoras, not as the founder of Freemasonry, but only in connection with Euclid and Archimedes as experts in geometry, whose works have been the basis on which the learned have built at different times so many noble superstructures. Geometry, he calls, that noble and useful science which must have begun and goes hand in hand with Freemasonry, an assertion which, to use the old chorus of the Freemasons, nobody will deny. To say that geometry is closely connected with operative Freemasonry, and that Pythagoras was a great geometrician, is very different from saying that he was a Freemason and taught Freemasonry in Europe. Martin Clare, in his Lecture on the Advantages Enjoyed by the Fraternity, 1735, does not even mention the name of Pythagoras, although in one passage at least, when referring to those great and worthy spirits with whom we are intimately related, he had a fair opportunity to refer to that wise leader. A Discourse upon Masonry, delivered before a Lodge of England in 1742 in Brother Mackey's possession, in which the origin of the order was fully discussed, contains not one word of reference to Pythagoras. The same silence is preserved in a lecture on the connection between Freemasonry and religion by Reverend C. Brockwell, published in 1747. After the middle of the century, the frequent references in the lectures to the Pythagorean symbols, and especially to that important one in its Masonic as well as its geometrical value, the 47th proposition, led the members of the society to give Pythagoras a relationship to the order to which historically he had no claim thus in a search after truth delivered to a lodge in 1752 brother mackey quotes the author as saying that Solon, plato and pythagoras and from them the grecian literati in general in a great measure were obliged for their learning to masonry and the labors of some of our ancient brethren. when this notion of the pythagorean origin of freemasonry began to take root in the minds of the craft it was more firmly established by the appearance in 1753 in the gentleman's magazine of that document already quoted to the effect that pythagoras learning his freemasonry of the eastern magi brought it to italy and established a lodge at crotona whence the institution spread throughout europe and from france into england but the sect of pythagoras did not last longer than the end of the reign of alexander the great So far from increasing its lodges or schools after the Christian era, we may cite the authority of the learned dossier who says that in after-ages there were here and there some disciples of Pythagoras, but these were only private persons who never established any society, nor had the Pythagoreans any longer a public school. Therefore, as to the Pythagorean origin of Freemasonry, we may conclude, the medieval Freemasons held no such theory, nor in their architectural labors did they adopt any of his symbols. The writer of the Cook manuscript in 1450, having at hand Hilden's Polychronicon, in Trevis's translation, a new edition of which had just been printed by Caxton, put into the legend of the craft some of the historical statements, such as they were, of the monk of Chester, but they formed no part of the original legend. In the later old records, these editions were rejected. The legend of the craft, as accepted by the writers of the manuscripts following that of Cook from 1550 to 1701, did not mention Pythagoras. Upon the revival, 1717, the scholars who worked upon the scheme, finding the symbolic teaching of Pythagoras very useful, adopted some of its symbols. These symbols increased. The name and the philosophy of Pythagoras became familiar to the craft. Finally, in 1753, a document was published which claimed him as the founder of Freemasonry. This theory is favored by a few writers, and the order has it as part of the Orthodox Creed that Pythagoras was a Freemason. Early Masonic tradition and historical records do not support such a belief. All right, well, as we find in most of these chapters, they start off with a title, it makes us wonder, and basically they use the chapter to disprove a thought or a belief about the origin of Freemasonry. And so that was the Pythagoreans and the Freemasons. We'll see you next week for, hang on, Freemasonry and the Gnostics. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a comment. We enjoy hearing from our listeners. If you really like what you heard, share this podcast with your friends and lodge members. Visit us online at SolomonStaircase.org.